Welcome to the post-election edition of the Kansas Reflector podcast. Wow, the 2022 elections, the November clash and the August primer offered something for everyone. There were surprises, cheers and tears for Republicans, Democrats and independents across Kansas. Sitting with me today in our Topeka office are three Reflector colleagues, editor Sherman Smith, reporter Rachel Mepro, opinion editor Clay Wirestone, And we're devoting this podcast to delving into the decisions of voters. Let's start with the November surprise, at least for me, of Democratic Governor Laura Kelly's re-election to a second term against Republican nominee Derek Schmidt, who built a political presence as attorney general. Uh, Mixed into this is independent candidate Dennis Pyle, a state senator who threw two by fours into the spokes of the campaign. Sherman, you want to lay down the foundation of this race and the election day decision with the numbers. Yeah, well, you know, the day after the election, after it became clear that Laura Kelly had won, her campaign manager, her her communications director, uh, Lauren Fitzgerald, issued a fake news release that said, for immediate release, don't underestimate Laura Kelly. (laughs) And I think that was kind of the, you know, really the the theme of this campaign from the start. During the COVID-19 pandemic, nobody expected that she could win re-election. Um, the pandemic was hard on everybody and nobody liked who was in charge of it. Uh, but, you know, she, she ran a very disciplined campaign focusing uh, entirely on her support for public schools and the economic developments in the state, balancing the budget, recovering from the mess she inherited from her predecessor. Uh, her, her Republican challenger, Derek Schmidt, is the attorney general, you know, he, he started off by attacking her on COVID-19 policies, um, but really just kind of focused on some of the, the national rhetoric, uh, critical race theory and socialism. She was Joe Biden's biggest ally, that sort of thing. And late down the stretch, uh, he kind of fabricated this controversy about a drag show in Wichita, which he falsely said the governor's administration had paid for, even though he knew uh, and and refused to retract his his attack once he was presented with the the facts of that case, uh, that situation. And so on election day, we saw, as many predicted all along, a very, very close race, too close to call on election night and, and Lori Kelly prevailing. At you know somewhere around seventeen, eighteen thousand votes, we still have mail-in ballots coming in. We we have some provisional ballots out there that'll be considered, um, and then we have this third-party candidate in Dennis Pyle, an independent uh, state senator who left the Republican Party to try to be a, a champion for the the far right and to raise voice of of people on the far right in Kansas. He believed that Derek Schmidt was not a true conservative, that he and Laura Kelly were really too close together on the, the political scale. Uh, and it forced Derek Schmidt, I think, to go to the right. Uh, in, in the end, Dennis Pyle had about 19,000 votes, which is enough to um, you'd, you'd think if all those votes went to Derek Schmidt, it would have been enough for Derek Schmidt to win. Um, and of course, it's hard to know who those people would have voted for if they would have even showed up if Pyle wasn't on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Well, this is Clay. I would also just say I, I think one of the biggest surprises in this race, really, for people who n- knew of many of the folks running, Kelly, Schmidt, Pyle, um, was just how... I don't want to say inept exactly because it wasn't inept, but just how underwhelming Derek Schmidt's campaign was. And not just at a certain point, but really throughout the entire 
throughout the entire campaign cycle. He never seemed to catch fire. He never seemed to have a great deal of enthusiasm for what he was doing. Um, there was just always this kind of aura around him that he was kind of going through the motions, perhaps especially when he started using that national rhetoric. And I think a lot of people in the State House, reporters, um, you know, lobbyists, people who just, you know, knew the people in this race, I think expected him to conduct himself, frankly, with as a much better candidate and better person in some ways than he did. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to say, this is Tim. I, one of the shocking things to me to read was that more than $40 million was spent in this governor's race. I just find it appalling. I, I think people should be able to make the decision without anybody spending $40 million. Just think what that money could have done otherwise to help people. Could have expanded Medicaid in, in Kansas for that much money. Yeah, and helped over 100,000 people with preventive health care. Right. Wow. I, what are the trade-offs there? Okay. Rachel, any thoughts about the governor's race? You're, you're new to Kansas. You're from Louisiana. Uh, is there anything about it that you thought was um, particularly interesting? Yeah, well, to kind of go off of Clay's um, to piggyback here, I thought it was interesting about how much national GOP rhetoric he used. You know, like, I mean, I'm coming in from Louisiana. He could have used those same talking points there. He could have used it in any other state. Nothing was really personal to Kansas in this. We just saw fentanyl. We just saw crime. We saw immigration. Nothing too personalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's a lot to take in here. So let's go quickly to the Kansas Attorney General's contest, won by Republican Chris Kobach, apparently. Uh, there's no, no surprise Kobach had detractors, but Democrat Chris Mann nearly won this race. He was a first-time candidate going against the person with perhaps the highest name recognition in Kansas. Clay, do you want to break it down? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the, the third time, I guess, is the charm for Chris Kobach after uh, running for governor in 2018 and losing to Kelly, uh, then uh, trying to make a run for U.S. Senate in 20, uh, 2020. And I think, frankly, uh, the, the state GOP did not want Kobach to run uh, for this, or did not, certainly did not want him to be their standard bearer. They, they pitched kind of in behind uh, State Senator Kelly Warren. Um, during the primary. Um, but you know, the Kobach name, the Kobach face, it's, it's well known uh, across Kansas. And ultimately, I think there's, there's something to be said for name recognition, especially when in a race like attorney general, it's a little lesser followed perhaps than the governor's race, than the big, you know, U.S. Uh, congressional races. And, you know, he made it through. I, I, I was surprised in a way just as an observer that that he he ultimately did it i think i think man had a um had a vigorous campaign but ultimately probably just i mean he wasn't as well known mm -hmm. so when i look at the race like this i look at the voter registration advantage of republicans it's eight hundred thousand to four or five hundred thousand for democrats and you would think that republicans could cakewalk a lot of these races when it comes down to something this close like in the man kobach race for attorney general the first thing i think of sherman is that maybe there's something flawed about the republican maybe there's something really here that republican gives republicans pause do you think that was part of the case you know, I think the the question about Kobach was always whether he could win support from moderate Republicans because he had positioned himself so far to the right in the past. And I think that 
for for me, having covered his campaigns in 2018, 2020, what was really interesting is that he seemed a lot more reserved this time around. Uh, he wasn't, you know, as, as wild and crazy as he seemed in 2018 or in, in the past. Uh, wasn't talking a lot about voter fraud. He, you know, he had his kind of staples of wanting to get rid of drop boxes. He's going to sue Joe Biden, you know, every day and twice on Wednesday or something. But he also had some ideas of what he wanted to do with the office. And it felt like Chris Mann was running a campaign that was just, I'm not Chris Kobach. And I, I think that just wasn't enough for people in the middle. Mm -hmm. So perhaps, you know, one of the things that uh, Mr. Kobach decided to do is to not be the bombastic Chris Kobach, but to be the quiet Chris Kobach. And maybe that helped him in the end. Let's turn to what we thought was going to be a really competitive congressional race in the 3rd District in Kansas City. It's a gerrymandered district that was designed by Republicans in the legislature to undermine incumbent U.S. Representative Sharice Davids, a Democrat, uh, leading everyone to believe that she was perhaps vulnerable to Republican Amanda Atkins. This was essentially a redo of, from the 2020 race. David's made the contest about Adkins' opposition to abortion. She fed off the August primary, defeated the proposed constitutional amendment that would have struck a woman's right to bodily autonomy and abortion in Kansas. Atkins tried to link David's to President Biden and personally blamed David's for inflation. Uh, you know, it's, I'm not sure it's anything a member of Congress from Kansas can control. And in response, David's hitched Atkins to former Governor Sam Brownback, who is one of the state's most unpopular recent governors. Clay, what's your sense of how, how uh, David's managed to win with a double-digit margin? Well, I think this race, kind of uniquely among many of the races in Kansas this cycle, Sharice David's looked at the results of that August 2nd amendment vote, and she never looked back. Like, the, the race was heavily predicated on women's right to, rights to bodily autonomy, to abortion rights. And, you, and frankly, Amanda Atkins, as someone who had directly worked in the, the pro-life movement, you know, that was a, a perfect summation, a perfect person to run against if that was going to be your prime argument as, as a Democrat. And so I think those, I think that framing of the race, which you know, David's also, I think, like Laura Kelly, a very disciplined campaigner who had a message that she stuck to and, and pushed over and over again. Um, I think that that really landed uh, with folks. And, and frankly, too, I, I mean, again, Amanda Atkins, someone who was, I believe, right, former Governor Brownback's campaign manager at one point. For the United States Senate race, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say that you have nothing to do with this guy or to truly distance yourself when you actually managed his campaign. Like it's I don't know. It, it seemed like a very um, Atkins was a really big target. And I think a lot of a lot of conservatives and Republicans in Kansas really, really talked her up, but were perhaps not as conscious of some of these really big vulnerabilities. It was had. disingenuous for Amanda Atkins to say she was not uh, an ally of Sam Brownback. You know, you just can't hitch your political career to Sam Brownback in, in all manner. And then when push comes to shove in 2022, to say, mm, don't look over there. She also is, this is Sherman, she was also disingenuous in trying to suggest that she wouldn't support a federal abortion ban when so much of her, her political career had been built on wanting to ban abortion. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Just we're going to pivot right here to the uh, retention votes of the Kansas Supreme Court justices. And Rachel's going to help us out with that. So all the Kansas Supreme Court justices were retained. Um, I think a lot of the controversy had something to do with what uh, rose up in the Adkins and Davids race. In the 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court uh, issued an opinion that affirmed the right to abortion in Kansas, even if Roe v. Wade was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, which happened. So, uh, Rachel, tell us about these justices who managed to keep their jobs. Yeah, so we thought maybe there would be a chance that uh, two of them specifically, ones you're talking about, that voted like to uphold abortion rights in the state in 2019. We thought maybe there'd be a bit more of a blowback to that situation. But again, we are seeing this kind of this is really a flood of support for, like, I guess, women's rights, pro-choice rights, because, again, um, it wasn't even close. I believe it was over 60% of voters, like, for each Supreme Court justice. Um, Stiegel was also in there. He was the one who dissented in that 2019 abortion. You're talking about Caleb Stiegel, a Supreme yeah. Court justice who was put on the Supremes uh, by Sam Brown. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was also um, brought back to office. I think he got... I think it was around 70%, but either way, like, um, it wasn't even close for all of them. Voters just sent them right back into office. The funny thing is I was talking to two voters outside. Um, they said that they were retaining no one because they just wanted to, like, up, I don't know, upend the status quo. What we're seeing, I guess, is more Kansas mm. voters wanting to know more about their Supreme Court justices. Yeah, maybe without personal insight into what those justices do and, and their work ethic and so forth, it was just a you know, thumb their nose at them and vote no. Rachel, also, could you uh, brief us on the outcome of the Kansas State Board of Education, which has constitutional authority over public schools, hundreds of thousands of kids across the state, and they had an election. I think the way it works is half of the board is up for election in each election cycle, so the turnover isn't so dramatic. So what happened there? Yeah, so basically for midterm elections, um, all the odd numbers get voted on. So this year it was one, three, five, seven, nine, um, and there was five open seats for that. All of them got filled by Republicans, but only two of those races were competitive. Um, it was one in three, those districts that had a Republican and a Democrat really facing off for each other. But again, we're going to see a more um, a more uh, leaning right Board of Education for 2023. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that'll be interesting. Uh, anybody else on those the Supremes or uh, the State Board of Ed? Sherman? Cliff? I, I was frankly surprised, especially after the results in August again, that there was not a more concerted or um, well-funded effort to um, kick the justices off mm-hmm. of the state Supreme Court. There were a lot of rumblings about that back at the time in August and September. And I mean, there certainly, I mean, there was some money put into it, but frankly, all of the ads I saw were ones urging all of the judges to be retained. Yeah. There was an organization established to try, and they, they had a simple message, retain all the Supremes and all the Court of Appeals. They, they re- retain everybody. We need an independent judiciary. And there really wasn't a strong rebuttal to that. I would Sherman? Just, I would just add that there have been campaigns similar to this in the past, uh, organized around school funding decisions, for instance, but never in the roughly 70 years that we've had this process, never has uh, a Supreme Court justice lost um, the seat to a retention vote. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to go to the lightning round here. We had a bunch of other political races that were decided. Secretary of State Scott Schwab, he's the chief elections officer, defeated a Democrat, Sherman. 
Well, I think there's a really interesting dynamic here, uh, particularly in the final debate, which Rachel wrote about, uh, where we had the Democrats saying, you know, some of these election deniers, we should probably be listening a little bit more to what they have to say and, and trying to meet them on their ground. And Scott Schwab effectively said, you know, screw these people. We've given them a chance to understand what's going on and they don't want to listen. Um, I think that, you know, that caused, I think, a number of people to say, I feel really comfortable about who we have as a secretary of state, his ability to manage an election, to actually govern, you know, whether you agree with him politically or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he is serious about running elections and running a tight ship. Yeah, the issue there is it's really scary to think that you have a secretary of state who's just going to run uh, uh, the place like a partisan workshop. Uh, Schwab, interestingly, in the Republican primary, defeated an election denier who got a bunch of votes. That's right. That that race was actually close. I mean, he had a decisive win, but he had to really work for it. Uh, he didn't really have to campaign much against uh, Gina Repas, the, the Democrat in this race, uh, and, and he won a decisive victory here. Mm-hmm. All right, Clay, the state treasurer, Lynn Rogers, a Democrat appointed to the job by Kelly, lost to State Representative Stephen Johnson, a moderate Republican. It wasn't terribly close. Uh, no, and I mean, we've, we've also got to pour one out, as it were, for Lynn Rogers here. He was the original lieutenant governor of, of Laura Kelly, uh, so, you know, won election with her back in 2018. She, she, he was then sh- shuffled off, as it were, to the state treasurer's office, and she brought in Dave Toland, who ran with her for re-election as the lieutenant governor candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Lynn Rogers, um, you know, Wichita area politician, well liked by a lot of folks in Topeka, ran a good campaign. But I think this is one of those races where, frankly, the D or the R next to the person's name makes most of the difference for people who are are voting in most of the state. And, you know, Stephen Johnson, again, a fairly well-known and well-liked uh guy in, in Topeka. And and frankly, treasurer is not usually an overly partisan position. I mean, oftentimes it can be a springboard to a, to a higher office as Jake LaTurner did because you get to go around and give people, you know, reclaimed funds or various things like that. So we'll see what a, a former representative, soon to be Treasurer Johnson does with the role. Rachel, I'd have you talk about Insurance Commissioner Vicki Schmidt, a former Topeka State Senator, uh, about that race. But I'll interrupt you and say she just clocked the Democrat candidate who didn't appear to uh, be serious about the race. Uh, she got 63 percent of the vote. And uh, Sherman, is it right? She had the, she received the most votes of any statewide candidate. That's right. Uh, uh, over 600,000 votes, which is the, the only candidate on the ballot anywhere who broke that number. Mm-hmm. And to continue with you, Sherman, U.S. Senator Jerry Moran, the state's most experienced hand in D.C. politics, defeated Democrat Mark Holland, who portrayed Moran as dangerous. But Moran didn't view this as a very serious threat to his political career, didn't campaign that hard and got 60 percent of the vote. I think uh, Moran was such a safe bet that the Associated Press called the race the moment the polls closed, even though Holland had more votes at that moment. <laughs> okay. All right. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's let's pivot to the uh, GOP U.S. House incumbents. Three of them. They all won. Um, uh, Rachel, you live in Lawrence, I believe, right? So uh, your new congressman is Tracy Mann of the 1st District. He actually represents Dodge City and Garden City way out west and also Lawrence. And he easily handled uh, Jimmy Beard with 68% of the vote. Uh, You know, what do you think of Tracy Mann? 
Oh, you know, well, uh, one interesting thing I was going to bring this up earlier is that if you look at most of the campaigns, we're not actually seeing too many like firm stances by the Republicans, like on actual concrete goals. We're seeing, oh, I'm going to stand up for security. I'm going to fight crime. But we're not seeing too many again, like here's what I'm going to do. A, B, C for stays in the office plan. And, and Tracy Mann fit that mold. And I think it was a specific campaign strategy by Republicans running for Congress to state these positions Fentanyl is bad, but not describe specifically how you're going to stop people from illegally importing these drugs that are killing Americans. Uh, Clay, any thoughts about Tracy Mann? Yeah, well, I I wrote a column about this a a couple of weeks ago when uh, I just had the realization when we were all meeting here that, you know, I'm also a Lawrence resident. We've got this race going on for who's going to represent uh, the biggest city now in the first district. Lawrence is the largest city in the, the Mm. the whole first district. You know, who's going to represent the, uh, our interests in Washington, D.C.? And I mean, really, it doesn't matter whether or not the representative is a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, Lawrence is a large city, has the kind of the flagship state university there. Uh, that representation in D.C. matters. And, you know, I couldn't reliably establish that Tracy Mann had done any campaigning in Lawrence this cycle at all, that he'd shown up. I think we later learned that he may have come to town for a fundraiser. But... You know, I think, you know, this is the real issue that that happens with with gerrymandering. You know, everyone looks at the Sharice Davids race and what that meant, and she was still able to pull out a win. But in what what happened with the first district with kind of the dilution of Lawrence's political power, you know, that could really end up hurting a town that includes, you know, it doesn't just include Democrats. I mean, it has a lot of people in it and it has a really important institution for the state. Right. In the second district, Representative Jake LaTurner uh, who represents a district that runs from uh, Nebraska to the Oklahoma border in eastern Kansas. He prevailed over Patrick Schmidt, 58% to 42%. And at the end of that, Schmidt decided to robustly uh, campaign and made a lot of allegations against uh, LaTurner. Sherman, what's your view of that race? You know, Patrick Schmidt uh, has a, a, a really interesting story, good candidate on paper. He was a uh, U.S. Navy uh, intelligence officer. Um, he, you know, he came out at the end in, in this final debate cycle, kind of firing it on all cylinders, attacking Jake LaTurner for running and hiding when the U.S. Capitol was under siege on January 6, 2001, and then voting hours later to uh, decertify or not to certify the presidential election results. Uh, he attacked him on a wide range of issues, but it seemed like it was just too little too late for, for Patrick Schmidt. His, his campaign was virtually non-existent until the final two weeks. And, you know, if he had found a way to engage with media, engage with the public, to be vocal about Jake LaTurner from the start, he may have been able to make things a little more interesting. Clay, I had a question for you. So Man LaTurner and Representative Ron Estes of Wichita, uh, they all prevailed. Ron Estes' wife won her legislative seat again, too. I should mention that. But in these congressional races, all won by Republicans, these three, is there any point in the future where these races could be competitive with a Democratic candidate? Well, I think uh, if you if you just look at the margins in the Laturner Schmidt race, I think you know as as Sherman was just saying, there's I think there's really potential for Democrats there. And frankly, I think in the first district, given the way that you continue to have population growth in the northeast corner of the state, and frankly, population declines in the western part of the state, 
that um, you could you could easily see uh, a candidate from Lawrence, let's say, a Democrat from Lawrence, run in the first district and perhaps not win, but certainly make someone like Tracy Mann work for it. Mm -hmm. Sherman? I think it's worth repeating that all of these congressional districts were heavily gerrymandered with the deliberate or the, the singular goal of running Sharice Davids out of Congress. Not only did it not work for Sharice Davids, but Republicans at, at a minimum weakened their position in the second district and in the first where, as Clay says, the if, if you had a strong popular candidate from Lawrence, um, you know, they, they would be able to make things interesting, especially if several college towns in that district. Um, but even if they, they don't, I think it's worth noting, too, that you have a situation where people in Lawrence are represented by the same uh, congressmen as people who live along the Colorado border. And that is a problem for democracy, no matter what happens. Yeah, the map in Kansas got pretty weird. Um all right. The Kansas legislature will remain quite conservative. Republicans narrowly retain their supermajority uh, in the uh, in, in the Kansas House. That that means a two thirds advantage over Democrats. And so in strictly partisan terms, the Republicans in the House and the Senate will be able to override vetoes by Governor Laura Kelly. The Senate wasn't up for re-election. They will be in 2024, and they also have a supermajority. So the numbers in the Senate are 29 Republicans, 11 Democrats. And at this stage, Democrats may have picked up one seat in the House, and the split, if it holds, will be 85 Republicans and 40 Democrats. Sherman, what do you make of the legislation? More the same, or do you expect much difference there? Well, Republicans uh, over the past four years have not uh, given Laura, Laura Kelly much credit, and I think that they would probably continue to underestimate her. All you need is one or two Republicans who are willing to take a stand on any particular issue to make a difference. Uh, and the Senate has a little bit more breathing room, but you know, you look at a situation like what we have with Dennis Pyle now, who has already had been stripped of prime committee uh, seats because of his willingness to buck the authority during this past session after the governor's race being iced out by the party, you know, he could really make a difference on some votes as well. Yeah, just back up to Dennis Pyle. He's a state senator from Hiawatha. And to run as an independent, he had to disavow the Republican Party. But certainly now he'll re-register as a Republican and will be in the state Senate. And so there's probably some people in the Kansas Senate that don't appreciate uh, what his role, potential role in uh, Derek Schmidt's loss in the governor's race. Clay, any thoughts about the upcoming 23 legislative session? I think Governor Laura Kelly said one of the first things she wants to do, and they have the money to do this, is instead of having a three-year uh, rollback of the state's sales tax on groceries, she wants an immediate end to that 6.5% sales tax on food. And uh, we'll see what the legislature does with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at what the politics were in the last session about the food tax, largely it was driven by an attempt to not give Laura Kelly a political win ahead of her re-election re bid while still allowing Republicans running for re-election in the House and Senate to say, oh, we did something. Mm -hmm. uh, now that she actually has won re-election, I think she may indeed have a good case and perhaps the legislature would go along with it to uh, lower that sales tax on food more quickly because you know, she already has the, the second term. Um, 
so you know it may there may not be much much for anyone to lose at that point. I would also expect that Medicaid expansion comes up again in some way, even if she's just the even if she's the only one talking. Yeah, about she's it. howling in the forest on that one. The Republicans are going to go for it. But in terms of tax reform and the food sales tax, I would not be surprised if Republicans in the House and Senate want to package that elimination of the food sales tax with other tax reform measures that Laura Kelly might have to swallow in order to get this food tax done. She will want a clean bill on food tax, but uh, Sherman? Yeah, this has been the issue in the past. Derek Schmidt attacked her at times for vetoing a, a bill three years ago that had uh, a provision that would have lowered the, the sales tax on food. It also had, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars in tax cuts for multinational corporations. And so you would expect some sort of give and take on this process. I, there's no no possibility, I think, that they just simply say, okay, here's the, the bill with nothing in it except immediately lowering the sales tax on food. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a new consensus revenue estimate that says there's about $1.2 billion in excess funding that weren't previously uh, accounted for coming in. And her budget director immediately said, this is why we can afford to get rid of the sales tax and we could do it as soon as April. Just to clarify on the state revenue forecast, that's an estimate. Are we talking about an extra $1.2 billion in the current fiscal year, which we're halfway through? Or do you mean the subsequent fiscal year that starts next July 1? Yeah, for clarity, it's another $800 million in the current fiscal year, which ends in about you know, eight, nine months. Mm-hmm. And then a $400 million uh, overflow for the following year. Okay, good. Lots of money. Lots of money to spend. It's good to be a legislature, legislator when you get to spend money as opposed to cutting it. Also on the ballot were two proposed constitutional amendments. Um, the amendment affirming sheriffs must be elected. Riley County will be exempt from this. Passed overwhelmingly. Rachel, what are the key points of that change uh, that are to be embedded in the state constitution? Well, first of all, I really feel like there's a lot of misinformation surrounding that one because what we're seeing is everything about protecting the rights of people to elect their sheriffs. That's not really been in question. The more interesting bit is the second part of that, which is that now, um, since it passed, local district attorneys can investigate their local sheriffs. Now they, you either get the attorney general to investigate or you have a recall election. So this is not great in areas where, say, um, because, again, if just the attorney general has the power to investigate, that means he can, like, turn down or, like, you know, I don't want to investigate this or I will investigate this. Before, um, pretty much any district attorney could start the procedures. So we have a lot more um, accountability, I think, a lot more transparency. And I think in the future, this is going to be harder to see. Um, I mean, if you look at the background of this, it was kind of started up um, with the, the Johnson County Sheriff's Office, really, where there's been some controversy surrounding Hayden. And we're seeing that kind of play out on a larger scale right now. Mm-hmm. Like the only other important bit of this, I think, is before the election, we were seeing um, really misleading information. The Johnson County's official Facebook page for the sheriff's department um, said that, like, vote on this. You got to vote yes. And you must pass it um, just to protect your rights, protect your local sheriffs. And again, I just think there's been a lot of misinformation around this. Yeah, just to clarify on that, the what right now a county attorney could <clears throat> request an investigation of a sheriff who perhaps was engaged in misconduct, and that 
uh, and also the attorney general's office could could step into that. But also there's a public mechanism through a, a referendum. Uh, you can get enough petition signatures. It's a very high number and a high threshold, but you could you could go after a sheriff that way. Now we're going to have the petition measure and the AG's office will be able to step in. Sherman, I, I'm uncomfortable with limiting to this to the AG because very often attorney generals uh, rely heavily on the endorsement of law enforcement sheriffs across the country. There's a there, there's 104 of them out there, and you you prove to the voters you're a law and order guy by getting the endorsement of sheriffs. What attorney general wants to make a, the sheriff community angry by trying to oust them? And I think you know it's worth noting we saw maybe an unprecedented number of blue uniforms in campaign ads this year for that specific reason. So there is a conflict of interest there for the attorney general. But also just as a practical matter, you have one guy in charge of investigating 104 sheriffs across the state. You know, that's just not very practical. And uh, it's, as uh, Rachel mentioned, this is on the ballot for one specific reason, and that is because Republicans wanted to protect Sheriff Calvin Hayden in Johnson County, who's running around talking about non-existent voting fraud and wanting to, you know, bust hippie schools together in Lawrence and deploying his private army of goons to take on the IRS. Yeah, he basically threatened, you know, if the IRS agents came in to do their jobs in Johnson County, he just might line up his soldiers with guns. It was just a reckless statement, which, of course, he's not going to do. But it kind of gives you an idea why uh, the county commissioners in Johnson County were examining the possibility of having an appointive system for the sheriff's office. Clay? Oh, I was just going to say it's I mean, this is just an example of while, you know, if you looked at election results across the nation, a lot of election deniers running for various uh, races lost. You know, this is not by any means the end of this story in Kansas of people who claim that elections are rigged are people people who are spreading conspiracy theories. I mean, the mere fact that this amendment got on the ballot to protect Calvin Hayden the way that it did with overwhelming support uh, in the Kansas legislature. The fact that it was written in such a way to get a, a very large margin of support from Kansas voters, I mean, that is going to give just aid and support for an indefinite period to somebody who's really spreading some very destructive and corrosive ideas in Kansas. Mm-hmm. There's a second amendment on the ballot, which appears to have failed. Very close voting here. It would have granted the legislature more authority to veto or sideline rules and regulations written by the executive branch. Clearly, this was a bid to undercut the Kelly administration. Um, Well, Rachel, what do you think about this? It, 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 It looks like to me voters were reluctant to to give a uh, one of the co-equal branches of government extra power. I actually saw the opposite. It was really close. And I camped out at one of the polling places just to ask people what they thought. Uh, most of them were thought it was more fair to shift the balance towards the legislature. Um, hmm. I think, again, it's just like learning to like, you just have to read it very closely because I thought the language on that was also a little misleading. And it was, again, I think a pretty clear attempt by Republicans to take more power back. And um, if like 
Governor Lori Kelly came back to power. I think that's what they're betting on. Okay. We, uh, I think what we want to do here is shift uh, and just go around the table and let's talk about things that were odd or quirky or really stick out in your mind in terms of the 22 election cycle. Sherman, you want to go first? Well, I think about a, a moment that I thought was amusing at the Kansas State Fair in Hutchison in early September. Uh, and just to, to set the scene a little, former Congressman Tim Hewell's camp uh, was connected to uh, a series of texts that went out right before the vote on the, the constitutional amendment on abortion in early August for that primary. These were texts that were sent deliberately to Democrats that flipped what a yes and a no vote meant, an intentional lie to try to get them to vote the wrong way. Um, Washington Post immediately connected this to Tim Hewell's camp, uh, although he later denied it at the state fair because he had refused to uh, you know, respond to inquiries about this. Somebody pointed out that he was sitting in the stand, so I turned around with my camera to try to take a photo of him. And as I did, I saw Eric Pauls, the, the campaign manager for Derek Schmidt, basically take a nosedive in front of me into the dirt. Uh, and I realized uh, later that the reason was, as he told me, he could not be seen in a photo with Tim Hewell's camp. Uh, Eric Pauls had uh, helped run the Roger Marshall campaign when Marshall took Hewell's camp out of the Republican primary in 2016. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah, gosh. I, I don't know why. Tim Hewell's camp is a former congressman and former state senator. I got no idea why he's behaving the way he is in just trying to be so dishonest uh, with with the voters. It's just, if you can't win on the merits, I guess you just cheat. Clay, uh, 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 any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we've kind of touched on this uh, up to here, but I think there's a, a real aspect that you saw in the elections in Kansas this year where female candidates were uh, whether through simple ignorance on the part of people who were watching or perhaps more malign uh, reasons, these female candidates were underestimated, you know, across the board. Laura Kelly constantly, you know, there was always a belief that, you know, she lucked into the office the first time around because independent Greg Orman was also running and, you know, siphoned votes. It was thought she would never be able to be an effective governor. There was thought she would never be able to run an effective reelection campaign. Well, she won. Likewise, Sharice Davids, again, someone who was elected in 2018, the feeling the instant that we change the, the districts, uh, she's going to go down. You know, and yet she also showed herself to be a very disciplined and effective campaigner. And then, you know, and, and to me, I think I think back to August again when we had this abortion vote and it, everyone thought it was going to be super close, super tight. And instead, you know, preserving abortion rights won by an 18 uh, percentage point margin. So I think just across the board in Kansas, politicians have underestimated, uh, you know, female voters and female candidates, you know, at their peril. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rachel? I think it's just funny how many loose ends we still have in this campaign. Like, we're still, like, we can't even predict all the results as of right now. There's still a lot of stuff coming in. I mean, in the attorney general's um, race itself, even though the AP called it for Chris Kobach, Chris Mann has not yet conceded, which I thought was a little interesting. Um, I talked to his campaign people yesterday, and they're waiting till all the mail-in votes and the provisional ballots come in. But um, as Sherman was saying earlier, it's kind of a reversal of what we usually see that um, more more Republican candidates usually refuse to call it that soon. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tight race. It's, you know, you put so uh, much emotion and time and effort into these races, it's hard to let go sometimes. Uh, the thing that I want to bring up is a mailer that came to my house. And uh, it's this little postcard printing on both sides. And uh, the, the front side says it has a pictures of five of the U.S. Supreme Court justices, U.S. Supreme Court justices. And it says it, it took just five anti-choice justices to overturn Roe v. Wade. And it also says, but Kansas pushed back and said no. And what they're referring to is the uh, rejection by Kansas voters in August of the constitutional amendment that would have said that women don't have a right to uh, particular health care involving abortion. Then you turn it around and it says, when you vote Tuesday, vote no uh, on the Kansas Supreme, on the retention votes for the Kansas Supreme Court justices. Vote no and let them hear you again. If you understand what I'm saying, they're conflating the U.S. Supreme Court with the Kansas Supreme Court and the no vote on the August Constitutional Amendment with a no vote on a retention of the Kansas Supreme Court justices. This is a completely bogus mailer, and the people who did this should be ashamed. Um, So uh, that's my two cents worth there, Sherman. I just have a bonus observation to make before we go here, Mm -hmm. because there is a statement that Derek Schmidt put out after he lost the election when he conceded. And I would just like to point out that, you know, this is somebody who joined a frivolous lawsuit to challenge the the presidential election of Joe Biden. Uh, His uh, communications director, C.J. Grover, told me in May of 2021 that they were going to make this campaign all about critical race theory. Uh, As we've mentioned before, he talked about how Laura Kelly is a socialist. I think he may have mentioned that 20 times in the state fair debate. Uh, He brought in a swimmer from Kentucky who was upset about tying for fifth place with a transgender athlete as part of his attack on transgender students in Kansas. Uh, He talked about uh, Laura Kelly being just like Joe Biden. Uh, All of these uh, just kind of hot button culture war kind of issues. And then when he lost the race, he put out a statement that said he's really disappointed that uh, he wasn't able to make the race uh, all about these issues that actually matter to Kansans. Uh, and then he listed off a bunch of things that he never talked about. He talked about, he mentioned in the statement, um, out migration of Kansans, the need to protect our water resources, uh, the, the need for uh, infrastructure upgrades, these archaic structures that we have in Kansas. Again, all very important issues that he never talked about. And he blamed mass communication for this. And so I would just make the point as well that uh, this was a campaign unlike really just about any other major party campaign for governor that I've seen where he, he rarely provided any access to news reporters about where he was going to be uh, or the, the ability to ask him direct questions. We could go two or three times a week to wherever Laura Kelly was going to be at and ask her questions face to face that she would answer. We didn't get that opportunity with Derek Schmidt. So when he's complaining about these issues, I just wonder what the hell is he talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, goodness. This, and this Clay? is Clay. And I would just add one more point. To Please don't Sherman curse said. like no, Sherman did. Um, which is simply that too often, you know, I think this happens for reporters. I think this happens for columnists. Uh, this happens for the general public. We see politics as a thing that happens. It is an individual. It's, it's a separate force that just kind of floats out there. Oh, this is what's happening with politics. When in reality, politics are just the choices that people make that candidates make, that voters make. And politicians have the ability to make better choices. They have the ability to talk about certain things and not talk about other things. They are not driven to do things. They decide to. And in as much as 
we had a campaign that was about certain things. That's because Derek Schmidt chose to make it that way. That's because Laura Kelly chose to make it another way. And then voters rendered their verdict. Yeah, it does seem a bit like whining when you have millions of dollars and the bully pulpit and you complain about not getting your message out. Uh, that's not anybody else's fault except the uh, campaigns. I think we're going to have to leave it there, everyone. Thanks. Thanks to everyone for participating today. And I should remind you to buckle up because the 2024 election cycle started Wednesday. Wednesday.